Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As you're finding your spot, would you please stand? Romans chapter 1. The verses we're going to read today, they summarize the book of Romans. This is Paul introducing the major theme that he's going to unpack for the entire book. This is the word of God. Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you for this church And I I praise you for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel. And would the gospel go forth from our lips and from our lives to totally turn this city upside down for your glory. I pray that you would help me as I preach through these verses this morning. And the words of my mouth, would they be delivered by your Holy Spirit as he leads and guides my tongue to plant them deep in the hearts of everyone here who hears your word this morning. Glorify yourself, and I pray that you would set a fire in our bones for the sake of Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the Christ, our God and our King. Amen. Please be seated. You know, for, for two plus verse 15, so three verses, you'd be surprised how much extra time it took me to just sort through what Paul's trying to say. Uh, the, the quality of these verses are that he packs so much into so little that it's actually going to take us two weeks to unpack these two verses. And so we'll do the first part today, and then we'll do the second part when I get back. Uh, But what if I was to say to you, uh, this is almost sacrilege when you do the comparison, but what I want you to understand here is I I want you to hear the syntax. What if I was to say this to you? I am eager to eat a Big Mac with you at the McDonald's in the Mapleview Walmart. Oh, for I'm not ashamed to eat Big Macs. For the Big Mac is the most popular hamburger in all of American cuisine. With over 9 billion served to anyone who is hungry. To the American first and also to the whole world. For in the Big Mac, the deliciousness of American cuisine is given to the person who eats it. Hamburger after hamburger. As is written, I'm loving it. Who talks like that? Like, basically, what am I trying to tell you about Big Macs? 
I kind of have a craving for a Big Mac. There's a McDonald's in the Walmart that's not too far from here. Why don't we go there and have a Big Mac? Everybody loves Big Macs all over the world. They're a huge hit. Let's have one. And then we can sing that little jingle. It was very catchy. I don't know. Maybe I'm dating myself. They may have moved on to some other jingle. But, but nobody talks this way, right? This, this is not how we, we speak to one another. And, and, and you might be forgiven for thinking that the way Paul writes these two verses is just normal nomenclature for his time, but it's not. Uh, what, what we read here in Romans is as awkward to the original hearers as what I just said about Big Macs is awkward to us. And so when we're going through these verses and we're like, oh man, this is Paul just being Paul again. It's, it's, it's all mysteriously woven together and I don't really understand it. That's just normal. That's how everyone would have heard these verses. So when, if you're in Rome and you got this letter from Paul and you're, you're hearing that he wants to come to Rome and he wants to preach the gospel in Rome, that all flows fairly easily. And then he gets to these two verses. You say, what, pardon? What are you saying? Now, the one advantage they might have over us is that this was something that was more common in Greek. That, that in Greek, you would talk this way if you wanted to emphasize something. So these verses are a tightly wound bundle of a theology. They are tricky to untie. Grammatically, and don't worry about understanding the grammar, but I think it's important for me to tell you that these verses are tricky because they they are composed of four consecutive subordinate clauses. Now you don't need to worry about what a subordinate clause is. All you need to know is that a subordinate clause intentionally makes the meaning of the phrase, the, the, the whole combination of clauses, awkward, at least to our modern ears, and even I- in ancient times. A, a subordinate clause is introduced by a conjunction. So a conjunction is like and, for, as. So in our, in our passage, we've got three for statements. For, 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 and then we have the fourth one is as. In other words, you could, you could replace all of those conjunctions with the word because. Because, because, because. What makes verses 16 to 17 especially difficult is that we have a subordinate clause attached to a subordinate clause attached to a subordinate clause attached to a subordinate clause. And if you're like, what, what? What are you talking about? Exactly. My point here is not to teach you grammar, but to just reassure you that these are difficult to understand. Uh, Because by the time you get to as it is written at the very end, you're four indents in. And the main clause is way up in verse 15. So the main idea of what Paul is trying to say is, I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. By the time you get to as it is written, you have already come to the fourth level of a clause that is dependent on the clause before it. So let me just explain this to you uh, one other way. We start with the main idea, the main clause, the main phrase. A clause is just a part, it's like a sentence or part of a sentence that gives you a main idea. So as I said, the main idea here is I am eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Then you get your first subordinate clause. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You get your second subordinate clause. 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then you get your third subordinate clause. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And then you get your fourth and final subordinate clause. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. As I already said, why does Paul say it this way? He says it this way because in Greek, subordinate clauses accentuate what you are saying. You say it in a backwards way to accentuate that what you're saying is important. It's like an ancient way of typing with bold and all caps. Right? You know how we do that? Bold. What I'm putting in bold is especially important. All caps. Stop yelling at me. I can't handle You know. That's exactly what subordinate clauses are doing. So because it's awkward to read and to hear, it forces you to slow down and read over and over and over and over again. So it's very intentional. This is one of those examples where the meaning of the text, or at least the primacy of the text, is embedded in the grammar of the text. So why would Paul do that here? Well, he's done his introduction. Now he's transitioning in the book of Romans to what he is going to tell us. He says, before I tell you what I want to tell you, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to do it with subordinate clauses so that you know that this is special. This should stand out. These two verses, verses 16 and 17, attached to verse 15, give us the main point of the book. So if you want to know how to summarize the book of Romans, all you need to do is memorize Romans 1, 15 to 17. Now, if I were to remove the subordinate clauses and smooth over the syntax, Paul would be saying something like this. So this is a lot more words to say the same thing, and you're going to notice I have to repeat certain things. But this is going to hit your ear a lot easier. You're going to say, oh yeah, that's not so complicated after all. So listen to this. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. That's his main idea. Now we go to that first level of subordinate clause. In order to make this smooth, I have to repeat what I just said. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That makes sense. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If I were ashamed of the gospel, I wouldn't be eager to preach it to you. It's not that complicated. Now let's go to the next level. Now notice how we pick up the, the next statement. We'll begin with the, the, the first subordinate clause is the main idea now. And the second subordinate clause is going to become the because statement to that. So just listen to what I say here. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Again, that's not that hard to understand either, is it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why not? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because that's the power of God for salvation. Everyone who believes the gospel will be saved, Jew and Gentile. That's not that tricky. Third subordinate clause. And again, I've got to repeat as my main idea the second subordinate clause. So just listen to this. 
the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also the Greek. Because in it, that is, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. This is getting a little bit more difficult because you have to answer the question, what's the righteousness of God? What is faith for faith? But the idea is not that hard to, to understand. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, because it is through the gospel that God reveals his righteousness and gives his righteousness by faith. And that's chapter 4 and 5 of Romans. Now we come to the last phrase. In it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Because it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now you might say, well, how do you know that this is a because statement? It says as, not for. But, but it's, it means the exact same thing. As it is written, because it is written. If God said that the righteous shall live by faith, he meant it. And where do you say that? Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which we're going to get to when I get back. Not today. But he says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That is, God's righteousness. How can God be righteous and save sinners? Well, the answer is the gospel. The gospel will reveal how a righteous God can save sinners. How? From faith for faith, by faith. And in case you think or are inclined to think that this is some new way that God is interacting with people, he said this to Habakkuk. In the 6th century B.C., the righteous shall live by faith. This is nothing new. So I can say that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God by saving people through faith because that's the way God has always saved people. My evidence? Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. God hasn't changed. So my goal to this point has been to just give you the big picture, how these verses are structured. They are awkward to read when you first read them, but if you slow down and see the structure, you understand why God, uh, Paul is using that structure, and then we just tease it out. It's not as complicated. Now, what we're going to do for, for this week and the week after when I get back is to take a look at these subordinate clauses. We're going to do the first two today and then the, the second two uh, in a couple of weeks. So the two clauses that we're looking at today are, are these. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That's the first one. And the second one is for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let me just get this out of the way so I don't have to worry about saying it again. Greek there means Gentile. It means non-Jew. It doesn't mean people who live in Greece. What Paul is saying, the, the gospel is for Jews and non-Jews. So whether you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, the gospel is for everyone. First for the Jew and then for everyone else. And we'll talk about that uh, later today. Let's start with this first clause. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? What's another way of saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? 
So you just turn it into the positive. I'm proud of the gospel. I love the gospel. I, I think the gospel is the best thing ever. So I, I want to preach it to you. So why didn't he say it that way? Why well, say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. There's a couple of ideas here. One is that this was probably part of an ancient creed that goes back to the time of Jesus, which would be rooted in when Jesus says, if you are ashamed of me, or if you're ashamed of the Son of Man, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of you before his Father and the heavenly angels. So this wording, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is probably you trace it all the way back to Jesus and his disciples reminding one another and then their disciples saying, Jesus was very clear, if we are ashamed of him, then he will be ashamed of us. And so as disciples of Christ, we affirm we're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. We are not ashamed of his gospel. Implication, he's not ashamed of us. Which results in, at the final judgment, we will stand. So, so that's the history to this, uh, probably. It also, when you say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If I was to say to you, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, what does it immediately, so preacher says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you're listening, what does it make you immediately do? Well, neither am I. I'm not ashamed of the gospel either. Or are you saying I'm ashamed of the gospel? Right, if I say it in the negative, you, you reflect in on yourself, you say, what is he saying? What is he saying about me? And, and so it actually has a very pastoral function to it as well. It, it requires us to ask ourselves the question, am I ashamed of the gospel? Because you can love the gospel and be ashamed of it at the same time. You can love the gospel but be afraid to share it. Not eager to preach it. So let me just ask us. Are we ashamed of the gospel? I'm not asking now if you love the gospel. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Let me be the sacrificial lamb on this one. At times, I have been ashamed of the gospel. I have had an opportunity to share the gospel, but I didn't know how it would be received. And really what I mean by that is I didn't know how I would be received. Anyone else had that experience? For the sake of the relationship, we might tell ourselves. For the sake of... Uh, not looking like a fool. For the sake of not making that person uncomfortable, which is your classic Canadian, I uh, don't want to make anyone uncomfortable. That, Paul just can't understand that kind of thinking. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Remember, from last week, if you just go up, he says, uh, I want to reap some harvest among you. He doesn't for a second think that everyone is saved in the Roman church. And I want to reap a harvest among the rest of the, the Gentiles in Rome. I am eager to preach the gospel knowing full well that he might lose his head if he does. And here we are in Canada. I don't know. It would make him feel uncomfortable. We're just so far off the mark. And I, I've put myself out there. I, that's me in some circumstances. Oh, I'm bold in here. But what about out there? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. Why? Well, that's what the next part 
is. It is through the gospel that God exercises his power to save anyone who believes. Part of this being ashamed of the gospel is because the gospel is so common. You know, in Solomon's uh, kingdom, gold and silver became so common that it was worth nothing. The gospel, the idea, the, the doctrines of the gospel can become so common to us Christians that, that they lose their, we lose our marvel, we lose our awe of the things that we believe. Have you stopped recently to marvel at our God and his gospel? Because if we truly understood the gospel, nobody could stop us from talking about the gospel. But it's just become common. We talk about it behind closed doors. But our God became one of us, lived a perfect life, and died for the people who hated him. And he made traitors, rebels, enemies into sons and daughters. You want to know what God thinks about sin? The cross is what God thinks about sin. That's what should happen to each one of us. Crucified by God himself. But instead, there's this great exchange. I will be crucified so that you can be raised from the dead and live forever. When is the last time that you truly marveled at the gospel? If we marveled, we would be eager to share it. I want to read, I don't often do this, because I think sometimes uh, quoting other people can be distracting. But C.S. Lewis says it so well. This is almost an 80-year-old sermon. He says it so well, I can't improve upon it, so I'm just going to read it. In his sermon called The Weight of Glory, this is what he says. It may be possible for each of us to think too much of our own potential glory hereafter, but it's hardly possible for any of us to think too often or too deeply about that of our neighbor's. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now understand what he means there is small g god small g goddess. He's talking about resurrected, glorified saints. It is a serious thing to live in a society of men and women who will be raised from the dead, conformed to the glory of Christ himself. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. What is he saying there? Some will be raised unto glory, others will be raised to condemnation, and they, all of God's common grace, all of his goodness will be removed, and they will be so evil 
as God hands them over to the depth of who they really are. So here's the, the future for all of humanity. Either you'll become so glorious that if we were to see ourselves in that glorified state, we'd be tempted to worship one another, which we know is not right, but that's we, so glorious is the future humanity. Or we become so vile, so evil, that we, you couldn't even conceive of in your worst nightmare how awful that person is. You see, even in Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, all of these, these men that we say are evil, God was still exercising common grace in them. They were not yet as evil as they could be. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You get the point? The common grace of God sort of levels, levels us all out into this mediocrity expression of humanity. Even the best are not that great and the worst are not that bad relative to the way it will be after the final judgment. We, some will be so glorious that we would call them gods. And that actually, the Bible does. We are going to be deified. We're going to share in the nature of God. We don't become God. Or all common grace is removed and the total depravity that is in humanity expresses itself without anything to stop it. I long to preach the gospel. To take just one person from that evil destination, that kingdom of darkness and death, into the kingdom of His glorious light. The book of Romans ought to do that to us as we explore the truths of the gospel. It will give us every impulse we need to be evangelists. Moving on to our second uh, subordinate clause. So let's start up in verse 15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So within this clause, we need to wrestle with two concepts dominantly. What is the power of God? And who is being identified when Paul writes everyone who believes? So what is the power of God? Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God. What does it mean that the gospel is the power of God? Well, what is power? 
When we think of power, we think of something uh, big and strong and mighty. We don't think of something weak and frail and, and dying. So how is the gospel an expression of God's power? Well, power itself, that, that concept, it can be defined this way, the ability to bring something about. So if you have the ability to bring something about, you are exercising power to bring that thing about. So the gospel is God's power to bring about something. What is that thing that the gospel brings about? The very thing that the gospel brings about is salvation. So what is the gospel that brings about salvation? That God himself would become a man, never sin, be perfectly righteous, have no reason to die, get the, the sin of the world heaped onto his shoulders, carry them in his body till he's sweating drops of blood, get whipped and scourged till he's pouring out the very life of God, carry his cross up a hill, be nailed by the very creatures that he created who are they themselves evil, and die. That's the power of God. Why? Because it's the only way to save us. Nobody else could die on the cross for the salvation of the world because everyone should be crucified anyway. You know, you, you hear of hundreds of thousands of people that, that die in awful ways. None of those deaths could save the human race. Because as unjust as it is to be murdered, everyone will be condemned ultimately anyway. None of us deserves anything from God. It had to be God who died on the cross because He shouldn't die on the cross. And it had to be a man that died on the cross because it's, it's our participation in the humanity of the one who died that saves us. If he's not a man, we're not saved. Mystery of the incarnation. God has to die. How do you kill God? Well, he becomes one of us. A man has to die, but which man is, is valuable enough to save the world? Only a man who's God. And it's through that logic that gospel that God exercises His power. Have you ever considered the possibility that God might be powerless in some way? We talk about God's omnipotence, all, all power. But actually, God is powerless in some respects. He is powerless to overlook sin. Can't do it. God cannot just say, you're forgiven. Why? Because God is righteous and he hates sin. He can't just say, well, you tried and I'm love, therefore, just come on into an everlasting, glorious forever and we're not going to deal with the sin problem. God is powerless to overlook sin which leads me to this question. Have you ever considered the possibility that God might be powerless to bring about your salvation? The devil has. Maybe he's whispered this in your ear. The devil actually convinced himself that God was powerless to save the human race. 
If the devil had been able to conceive of the power of God in the cross, he never would have possessed Judas to put him there. The devil could not conceive of this kind of power. So what might the devil have been thinking when he possessed Judas to betray Jesus unto crucifixion? I don't know. I don't spend a lot of time trying to get into the devil's head. But let me offer you a couple of insights. I'll tell you what the devil was not thinking. The devil was not thinking that by crucifixion, Jesus would exercise the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It just wasn't on his mind. It's not what he thought. Why not? Either, number one, Satan didn't think Jesus would go through with it. That's what the Garden of Gethsemane might have been all about. Satan might have had an inkling that there may be something could be transacted on the cross, but he was putting all of his chips in on that, like Adam, Jesus would fail. And if Jesus fails, then we're all lost. So it was a high, all-in gamble by the devil. That's one option. If he could break Jesus in the garden, just as he broke Adam in the garden, then humanity would have been lost twice in a garden. Praise be to God that uh, the second Adam came to life in a garden, and on that first Easter morning, the women came to uh, anoint his body, and they saw one who they thought was the gardener. Oh, they weren't wrong. Salvation won in a garden. So either Satan didn't think Jesus would go through with it and the, the corruption of Jesus would have been the corruption of the human race, game, set, match, or Satan could not even conceive of the idea that God could exercise his power sacrificially. Remember our definition of power. Power is the ability to bring something about Satan knew that the wages of sin is death. That's a truth that Satan is entirely on board with, even though it will mean his own ultimate death and condemnation. Nevertheless, he's going to take as many people with him. He knew that. He knew that because all have sinned, he could stand before the judgment seat of God and accuse every one of us of sin, which therefore merited our death, which is of the death of our body, but then also the death of our eternal future condemnation, hell. Satan knows that. That's what he's banking on. What he did not know, what he could not have conceived of, was an exercise of divine power through the sacrificial, substitutionary death of God in exchange for sinners. His warped, evil mind can't even fathom that kind of goodness. Which is why fallen humanity has a difficult time understanding that kind of goodness. We just can't get our heads around it. And nobody can understand the gospel unless God opens their minds to it. Because it doesn't make sense to sinful people or sinful angels. Evil has no categories for conceiving of this kind of power. Herein lies the glory and the mystery of the gospel. The gospel is a totally unexpected display of God's power. We expect God to come in the earthquake. 
in the fire, in the storm, in the judgment, but not in the cross. That's not the kind of power that we were looking for. But that's the way that God achieves our salvation. The cross is the power of God, for it is by the cross alone that sinners are saved. There is no other way. It is a total lie, a corruption of the truth, that there are many ways to God. There is one way to God. That's it, the cross. leads us to our last point of the morning, which has a couple of sub-points, since we're into sub-points this morning. Who's being identified when Paul writes, everyone who believes? It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. That, that phrase, everyone who believes, is almost an oxymoron. Everyone, that's universal, who believes, that's particular. Everyone, all people who believe, particular. Everyone, universal application, every nation, every culture, every ethnicity, every age, every socioeconomic class, everyone who has ever lived at any time, both men and women, old men and young men, old women, young women, children, babies, fetuses. Everyone is saved through the cross. There comes a point where God requires us to actually believe it, but by God's grace, those who are unable to believe because of their stage of life, God is gracious. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. That's, that's a glorious truth of the gospel. All these distinctions of humanity have fallen away in Christ. Just listen to the news. We, we are parsing out our differences, especially in politics, more than ever before. More so in the United States than in Canada, but increasingly in Canada. And Jesus comes along and says, there's no difference here. Everyone, universal application. But there's a particular application, who believes. Only those who believe will be saved. Now initially, this, this is getting at the fact that just being a Jew is not enough because there's a lot of people that thought by, by their biological lineage and their circumcision, they're set, they're going to be saved. And this undermines, I says, that's impossible. You are not saved because you are descended from Abraham in any way, shape, or form. Or if you've gone through the rites of circumcision, you have to believe. But then he goes on, he says, but I don't want Jews to think that they're, that they're uh, missing out on something. It, this salvation is to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. Now most of us are Greeks, that is, we're Gentiles, we're not Jews. There might be a couple of Jews among us. What does it mean that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Greek? This is not the way we think anymore in the church. We, we, we don't think that the gospel is first for the Jews and then for the Greeks. If anything, the Gentiles have taken over the church. So what does it mean? Quite literally, what Paul means is the Jews have priority in the gospel. They have an advantage over us Gentiles in the gospel. What do, what do I mean they have an advantage and a priority? Well, first of all, there's neither Jew nor Greek. So what I'm not saying is that they have a better eternal future ahead of them or that, that they're going to be more glorified or God loves them more. That's not what I'm saying. 
But I will give you six ways that the Jews have an advantage over Gentiles. Number one, they have a worldview priority. I'm going to call them priorities rather than advantages. They, they have, an adv- or it's the same thing, priority, advantage. They have a worldview advantage. I don't know, we probably haven't given this much thought, but the gospel shares the exact same worldview as the Hebrew Bible. There's no dissonance between the two. So when you're evangelizing a Jew, you don't have to do anything to restructure their worldview if they are in keeping with the Hebrew Bible, which is our Old Testament. All you have to do is show them the logical conclusion of that worldview. So the gospel should be easier for a Jew to understand than a Gentile. Because for us Gentiles, we have to change our worldview in order to be saved. Not so with the Jew. Second, scriptural priority, which these all go together. The Hebrew Bible is the very scripture of the gospel. Where do you find the gospel? I know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Romans, all, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, New Testament. But actually, before the New Testament came along, where do you find the gospel? Old Testament. The, the Hebrew scriptures, the sacred text of the Jews are the very scriptures of the gospel. So you, you don't even need to evangelize a Jew with the New Testament. Just evangelize them with the Old Testament. Take them to their own scriptures. Now, that's not true with, with Gentiles. If you are evangelizing a Gentile, you have to get them to throw away their sacred text. They have to do away with their scriptures, whatever they may be. And you have to show them that the Bible is the Word of God. And you have to create their worldview by teaching them the Old Testament. So the Jews have a huge scriptural advantage over Gentiles when it comes to the Gospel. Third advantage that they have is it's a covenantal priority. God has entered into binding covenants with Israel that are unlike any kind of relationship that God has with any other nation. God has not entered into a covenant with Canada in the same way that he has entered into a covenant with Israel. If you have the document where, where God wrote on a, on a tablet or in your email or something that he's in covenant with Canada the way he's in covenant with Israel, show it to me. And if, if we're in the United States, this would be harder for me to preach because most Christians in the United States think that they're the new Israel, that God has entered into some kind of a covenant with the United States of America. That's just not true. The only nation in the history of the world that God has entered into a covenant with is Israel. So it's the only nation at the end of the day that's going to stand. And there will be people from every tribe and language people and nation that comes into the commonwealth of Israel, but it's the nation of Israel that will stand forever. We've been invited into their national covenants, not the other way around. Gentiles have to be grafted into God's covenants with Israel. Israel just needs to appropriate the covenants that God has made with them by faith. It's a covenantal priority. Fourth, a messianic priority. Let us never forget that Jesus was a Jew and is a Jew. Do you know that? Jesus is a Jew? And I, in present tense, because he's alive. 
Jesus is a Jew who came to the Jews as the king of the Jews. And Jesus spent next to no time evangelizing Gentiles. He mentioned Gentiles from time to time. I have sheep in another pasture. Uh, uh, I have to go for them too. And the Syrophoenician woman, uh, you're not a Jew. Yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. Oh, your faith is amazing. You're healed or your, your daughter is healed. The centurion. So there's examples of, God, of Jesus interacting with the Gentiles, but he came for the Jews. As the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of all nations. He is our king because we've been grafted into the covenants of Israel and their king is our king. This is really important foundational worldview stuff to think through. Fifth, missional priority. I've, I guess I got into this already. The ministry of Jesus was focused on the Jews. In fact, it was a huge debate in the early church. Is the gospel open to, available to, non-Jews? Is it open to Gentiles? Praise God that, that it is, but that wasn't a given. Actually, God had to come to Peter in, in a vision where all these unclean animals came down and Peter, uh, God said, get up, kill, and eat. No, I would never do that. And that was God opening the door for evangelism to the Gentiles. And then he, he called Paul to be an evangelist to the Gentiles. But even Paul, Paul would say, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. And every time Paul went into a new town or city, do you know where he went first? The synagogue. Because the gospel is first for the Jew. And if they, missionally, and if they reject the gospel, then we'll also go to the Agora and preach it to the Gentiles. In light of all this, Christian anti-Semitism is ludicrous. It makes absolutely no sense. It is totally evil. I think we all know that anyway. It's wrong for anyone to be anti-Semitic. But it's especially an aberration. It's appalling that there have been Christians who actually look down on the Jews. They are brothers and sisters. We, everything we have is because God has blessed them, entered into covenant with them, revealed His will to them, sent His Son to them. And we are grafted into them, not they into us. Love Israel, love the Jews, because we are Jews by adoption, sons and daughters of Abraham. Which means, I'm going to go this far, we're going to get into this more when we go through chapters 9 through 11 of Romans sometime from now. But I want to make a statement now, plant the seed. Replacement theology that states, and there's different kinds of replacement theology, but replacement theology that states that the church has replaced Israel is wrong. That makes no sense. Because what most people mean by that is that Gentile Christians have replaced Jews. It's not true. We've been grafted into what God started through the Jews. If there's any kind of replacement theology at all, it's this. That Jesus Christ, who himself is a Jew, came to do for the Jews what the Jews could not do for themselves. 
And in so doing, He is the true Israel. And through Him, the true Israel, the nation of Israel, and the covenants of the nation of Israel find their fulfillment and their yes. And the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel in Christ Jesus, the true Israel, overflows the boundaries of Israel and brings us Gentiles in. That kind of replacement theology I can get on board with. But this idea that the covenants that God made to Israel have been replaced by covenants that God has made with the church has no place here. Because it just misses so much of what God is doing. The gospel is to the Jew first and then the Gentile. And everything we have is because of God's grace and action through the Jews, climactically through the king of the Jews who is the true Israel, Jesus Christ our king. You see why we have to take our time through these verses. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Soshore, in Barrie. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to us Gentiles. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How much do you love the gospel? You can answer that question by how eager you are to preach it. How eager are you to preach the gospel? Let us not be ashamed. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to the glory of the gospel, for in it you have brought about our salvation in Christ. Thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.